No, you tell it. No, you. I'm not telling it. You should totally tell it. <laughs> well, you should tell it. No, you tell it. No, You Tell It is a series that switches up the storytelling. So each performer writes a true life tale and then, switching with a partner, performs the other person's story, giving everyone involved the chance to share their own stories and experience someone else's. The top five answers are on the board. Name something that is precious. Our first story delivers us right into the mind of its author, but this seemingly humorous daydream leads her to recollect lost lives and haunting memories that have shaped the way she lives and copes. Written by Heather Quinlan and read for us by Sokanteri Sfei, here is Survey Says. As you will hear, we asked each of our storytellers to draw and present three grocery items, other than toilet paper, that have become precious to them since we last rehearsed in March. What became clear is how much we all have gained a new appreciation for basic necessities. I'm very curious to see what she came up with. Our first author this evening, Heather Quinlan. Uh, your show and tell. Thank you. Um, uh, Kelly Jean set the bar way higher than uh, I was able to fulfill. Uh, this is what years of uh, paying for your kids' art lessons will get you. Um, this is... Uh, wasabi seaweed crackers that I discovered at Trader Joe's and I am so obsessed with them that I have to keep a stock in them in my house at all times. I even have them for breakfast after yogurt. That's disgusting. But I didn't know what it was, but apparently it's umami, the taste that isn't a taste that we ever heard before. But Jesus Christ, it, 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 uh, it strikes something in me that is akin to love. Um, this is macaroni and cheese, which has helped me get through a lot. Uh, it always has. Macaroni and cheese was the last meal my mom had before she gave birth to me. So uh, it's, it's in my DNA. And this uh, really crazy thing is, uh, I'm sure you all know, it's edamame. <laughs> I'm sure you all know. Which I realized I could actually buy and not just like get it as uh, an appetizer, which is great. And then you get, you know, your finger salty and burnt and everything, but that's kind of fun. But it's also good as a whole, taken as a whole, it provides a meal for me. And as we know, um, uh, food can help hide feelings, especially in these times. And so these together, especially seaweed wasabi uh crackers i i can't say enough about them just you know don't take my stash and um those those are the biggest things um i'm available for any art classes that you need teaching um you'll know how to reach me i do have to say i love the handle because it, it it kind of speaks so that you've got the uh the the reusable tote yes it that goes you're saving the environment nice lovely, <laughs> lovely detail Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Heather. And with that, here is our first story of the evening, Survey Says, written by Heather and read for us here by Soaks Fay. Survey Says. When I found out I was going to be part of No, You Tell It, I was thrilled. When I found out the topic was precious, I was unthrilled. Anything worthy of being called precious was too precious to me. My love for my fiance, 
daffodils by the side of the road, a childhood combing the weeds of Staten Island, looking for dead bodies and occasionally finding one. Yeah, kind of. But that was more fun than precious. Price precious. I'm cringing. It always seemed like the first meeting of No, You Tell It was a week away. And as a procrastinator, I was happy about that. I hadn't read Kelly Jean's email closely. I'd written down the date the figured we'd come in, introduce ourselves, talk about our pain, write down words, go home. Then I would have another week after that to actually produce something. Phew, back to napping. When I told my plans to my fiance, Adam, he told me, I might be wrong, but I think you have to show up with a rough draft. Oh God. I went back and reread the email. Not only was he right, but I needed a first draft in two days and the suggested length was 1,600 to 1,700 words. So I couldn't take a nap. And I would have to write many, 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 many words. During lunch in the kitchen with our friend Art, I tried to learn what they thought was precious. Art said, Jim, but he was eating a taco. So I thought it said, Ugh. Adam tried to get me brainstorming with name five things, which made me cut him off and say, we asked 100 people the top five answers on the board. Here's the question. Name something that's precious. This was family feud. In my mind, the Richard Dawson one where he kissed all the lady contestants until Rock Hudson got AIDS. That show was a huge part of my childhood, pretty much anyone's childhood who grew up in the 70s and the 80s. As my uncle once said, we all had the same six channels. We all watched the same shit. So I'm Richard Dawson, barely hiding my British accent, kissing all the birds wearing a Botany 500 suit. Wait, no, I'm a contestant on Family Feud with the Dorothy Hamill haircut getting kissed by Richard Dawson wearing a fake Halston. Me and the Halston, not him. Again, we asked 100 people the top five answers are on the board. Here's the question. Name something that's precious. I have to hit the buzzer before my opponent, who looks like he graduated from Cornell just to be on Family Feud. I don't have an answer, but I hit it anyway. Me. I am mute, the audience laughs. Richard Dawson says, show me nothing. Richard Dawson then tells me, if it were up to him, Beef Eater would be the number one answer. Like I said, he's British. He then turns to my opponent who says, Gem, like Art did, and it's the number one answer. Their team decides to pass. I go back to my family. There's no one there. The dream sequence dies. I have a hard time saying what's precious because to give it a name would be to make it valuable and therefore dangerous. I'll explain. My dad died in 1996, 24 years to the day after his brother Danny Boy died in a drunk driving crash. I quit drinking 19 years to the day after my dad died, 54 years after Danny Boy died. Danny Boy was driving home from a party and was elected the least drunk, so drove Tommy Gorman's car straight into a tree. Danny flew through the window. The other guys got broken legs. My family was destroyed. I was 12 years from being born. Also, also, two years after that, my grandfather's brother died driving drunk on Highland Boulevard coming home from a Christmas party. He hit a pole. Five years after that, my grandmother's brother 
died driving drunk. He struck a pole too. Again, we asked 100 people the top five answers on the board. Here's the question. Name something you drink to calm your nerves. I have to hit the buzzer before my opponent, who looks like he graduated from Brown just to be on Family Feud. Me. Nail polish remover. The audience is silent. Jolly Richard Dawson looks terrified, horrified, then turns and says, show me nail polish remover. It was the anniversary of all those deaths and I just wanted to join them. I didn't even know Danny Boy, but I wanted to meet him and I missed my father so much, just as much as if we'd buried him the day before. Yet here I am and I'm happy about it. If I died, it would have undoubtedly killed my mother and that alone would be enough to send me to hell. I never would have met Adam at a party where we played a homegrown version of Family Feud. Fallen in love, had the guts to propose to him, start a new life. I never would have met my family in Ireland who I connected with through a genealogy site. They're the most wonderful people in the world. I'm a Quinlan, they're Quinlans. I found my Quinlans. I was alone, Quinlan left barely standing till I found them in Tipperary, which my cousin Laura called the Eltingville of Ireland. Those of you from Staten Island will get it. But I don't care. I regained a family to huddle with on family feud. I hang out in the cemeteries, filming them, the art, the history, wondering about who's there, wondering if they know each other like in our town. I've often wondered if my dad is now friends with the people he's buried next to. I wrote their names down and thought about contacting their families, but then decided that was too weird. Still, you never know. You could say I'm obsessed with death from a distance. I'm writing a screenplay called Die Bitch Die about my stepmother, though in all honesty, my cousin Dorothy came up with the title. I don't fear death. I need a mammogram. Breast cancer runs in my family. Hell, all kinds of cancers do alongside alcoholism. We're really blessed. But I'm 45 and haven't gotten one yet. I'm not worried about dying. I'm not longing to die, but I'm quite interested in it. Yet it's no longer precious to me. Switching it up, we're headed down to the Paradise City, where two Cambodian refugee adolescents stumble upon Guns N' Roses and experience a means of catharsis from Axel's screeching voice. Whether searching the library or recording cassettes, the discovery and pursuit of music leads the narrator to find her own voice, even if it takes a lifetime. Here is I Heard Some Chords, written by Soaks Fay and read for us by Heather Quinlan. This is No You Tell It, so we're going to be switching it up. And we're going to welcome Soak back into the hot seat because she wrote our second story for this evening. And I'm very curious to, we got a quick preview of it earlier, but to get a better <laughs> look and hear uh, at what your three items are from the grocery store that have taken on a new life. I totally did not do this a few minutes ago. I mean, you know, I clearly spent a lot of time on this. So, <laughs> so uh, uh, my grocery list is a bit carb heavy, as you can see at the top. Rice, noodles, and this round thingy, an attempt at, uh, at like a donut. But donut and bread, really. I think that 
Uh, all these carb-heavy foods are the cheapest and the, the easiest to buy and last the longest and are filling. And so I think there's that like refugee mindset, which is like, go back to the things that are cheap and you know can, can take care of your family more easily. Yes, Erica, carbs are our friends. I love it. And now I'm very excited to hear switching it up. We're going to tune in for I Heard Some Chords, written by Sokanteri Sfei and read for us here by Heather Quinlan. I Heard Some Chords. Axel Rose was a damn banshee. My prepubescent self was struck by something in him that was unidentifiable to me at the time. But he had a way with his snake-like side-to-side gyrating, the long red hair and the bandana. Uh, songwriting, the melodies that remained in your mind's ear. Songs like November Rain, Sweet Child of Mine, remain in the cultural memory of Americana, even as the times change. I first heard Guns N' Roses in the Bronx at a land house. The friend of my older brother, T, actually we, my younger brother, Jamie and I, heard the music and the impression it left remains imprinted even now in my memories of growing up in the borough once normally associated with hip hop, the song Rocket Queen from Appetite for Destruction. Alain, whom I'd had a 10 year crush on, asked if I wanted to try playing the bass. Well, duh. Then he taught me the two notes required to play during the second half of the song, where Rocket Queen took a completely different musical turn. My fingers were small, they always have been, but could pluck the strings. Connected to the amplifier, I suddenly heard my success throughout the entire room. I was hooked. So was Jammy. He wanted to hear more. But first, our older brother T couldn't stand Axl Rose's voice, Guns N' Roses lead singer. So that was a bit of an obstacle to our gathering of extremely limited funds. At that point, the music we were subjected to was under the tyranny of our older brother. We spent a good few weeks listening to Irene Cara's What a Feeling album every night before going to sleep. He was more partial to freestyle, new wave, and some R&B. I leaned toward anything with a melody I could remember. No, there had to be another way that went around him. Next, we tried the New York Public Library's Morris Park branch in the northeastern part of the Bronx. I got my hands on the cassette tapes for Use Your Illusions 1 and 2, a bit stimulated by some of the inappropriate imagery on the ladder, some illustrated boobs and panties down the blonde woman's ankles. When I went to the library checkout, barely tall enough to hand my library card to the seated employee, I was told that I was too young to take it out and would require an adult. The plan was foiled, but the desire was implanted and the roots of our love for guitar-based music were sown. Eventually, the grunge age ushered in and we became obsessed with the idea of getting a guitar. Wayne's World had just come out and we wanted a guitar as badly as Wayne wanted the white Fender Stratocaster, his dream guitar, in his local music shop where no playing of Led Zeppelin Stairway to Heaven was allowed. Well, there was a guitar being sold at the lone independently owned music shop in Pelham Parkway where we bought all our cassette singles. It was around $130. Given that we had no allowance, never slash could not slash would not ask for money, $130 seemed insurmountable. It would take a little more than searching couch cushions for change to reach that kind of a goal. 
They def T definitely wouldn't have supported such a habit. We had to live with the burn of that desire for a while. Since it seemed impossible to get a guitar, we settled for just buying cassette tapes of bands whose singles we enjoyed hearing on the radio. But here's the thing, trying to get our hands on music was expensive and a time-consuming act. Borrowed music collections meant working with what was already there, pretty much settling. Although sometimes you wound up with auditory gold. There were often advertisements for music memberships like Columbia House, where you could, where to start, you could get 10 albums or so for one cent, which dragged you into some membership you ultimately didn't want. We often perused all the albums we dreamed of owning in those magazine adverts until I managed to find a kid who played saxophone in my symphonic band on Saturdays who already went through the trouble of taping one cent to the catalog and putting it in the mailbox to redeem his desired music. That's when we broke Khmer kids who suddenly moved to the projects, got our hands on Soundgarden, Pearl Jam, Smashing Pumpkins, Live, Stone Temple Pilots, and whoever's music taste we were again at the mercy of. By this point, we were in the early double digit ages, junior high and high school age, a highly uncoveted time in our childhood. This was also around the time that that huge Gregorian chant album came out for which Tower Records had huge posters. It was there at the Lincoln Center Tower Records that I would listen to music samples at listening stations with enormous headphones and newly released albums, though rarely having money to buy anything. This meant going hungry if friends asked me to hang out, too ashamed to tell them why. It meant saving my lunch money and starving the whole day so I could afford to get some Chinese buns instead while hanging in Chinatown with my friends. It meant I couldn't afford to pay for outings, let alone music. And more importantly, even if I could, I likely wouldn't be allowed to go because my parents wanted me home to the Bronx before it got dark. My mother gave me an allowance of $3 a day while I was going to a specialized music and arts high school in Manhattan. I would play flute and chamber ensembles, symphonic bands, and eventually orchestra during the day, but my heart was more into singing and the bands Jamie and I followed. I can't stress enough how not having access to money in a music economy that still depended on cassettes and CDs meant that we were shut out from being able to purchase any kind of music whatsoever. This meant no Napster, no Spotify, no Amazon, no YouTube. It meant that if you liked music, you had to listen to the radio with a built-in cassette recorder and hope your favorite song came on so you could press the record and play button at the same time to catch it. But only after the DJ would stop talking because nobody wanted to record his voice. Cassette singles were a few bucks, but limited you to only one song, its remixes, and a B-side that was a toss-up in terms of likability. For kids with parents living on a string, to buy any music was a precious thing. You would look for sales, tapes, CDs to borrow, watch Saturday Night Live if your favorite band performed, or wait for them to appear as guests on any other shows. Or if you happen to get a blessed subscription to cable, you could watch it on MTV or VH1. At a certain point, however, we finally managed to purchase cassette tapes and eventually some CDs of things we liked. However, the next issue was transporting music. I mean, sure, we could play CDs in the car, but only Walkmans, portable cassette players that existed for commuting. And don't even get me started on Discmans. 
which were portable compact disc players that were rendered useless if they weren't held upright. My daughter's generation will never know the obsession of recording a song over and over again just to avoid rewinding a tape. Song on loop, anyone? Since we were at an age where we were still on excursions with our dad, we decided to try our mixtapes in his car. Jamie was proud of our 90s model Toyota Cressida and looked for any opportunity to play his slash our music in the car. We knew our parents frowned on rap, such as Biggie Smalls, yet we managed to play clean versions of tracks with cussing dubbed out or playing hip-hop instrumentals. We also played Guns N' Roses, too, and my mom thought the song title was Welcome to the Junkie. We thought that was fucking cool. I look back and think about what was even more precious than getting our hands on music, and that was the connection my brother and I solidified with this common want. We so badly wanted a guitar. We would hang out in my room, the lights dimmed, then put on some rock and use my extended left desk lamp as a guitar. The spring at the end was quite thick and we would pluck it, making very strange bass-like fuzzy twangs to stone temple pilots. It was better than air guitar and we had good rhythm. Speaking of which, my father has never sung or danced in front of me my entire life. He has also refrained from expressing emotion aside from anger. Now, I don't know if it's because of his personality or because my parents survived a genocidal communist regime known as the Khmer Rouge in the late 70s. It's difficult to distinguish between who he is and what he's been through. So I'm left picking up the pieces of clues to understand him. But goddamn, he could tap out a rhythm in the car on the steering wheel. It was my way of knowing that he was there listening to the same music as us, not lost in some reverie, which is how I always imagined him. We could always tell if he liked the music or didn't hate it by whether or not he would tap rhythmically to the song. We found that our dad's fingers seemed to like Guns N' Roses. Not a singer, but daddy's preferred sound was a grunt. Grunt of approval here, grunt of discontent there. It was only the unspoken word I registered from him that even resembled a melodic, and that's pushing it, phonated utterance. I'm taking some liberties here in my description because after all, I'm the same person who played a desk lamp and heard a guitar. With the beauty and new eyes that adult hindsight allows, I look back at Axl Rose as more of a sex symbol, partly because of the confidence and looks he exhibited at the time, but more importantly, loved his audacity to move his body as he wanted on stage no less. And the power to sing a register that seemed unreal to me at the time, arranged normally associated with women. I love the convention breaking. I wanted to sing like that. I wanted that freedom from the expectations imposed on my own body. We barely expressed emotion in our household and words were practical, used sparingly aside from enforcing my parents' cultural expectations. In this house, I wanted to scream for all the times my body hurt, that my heart was pained. I couldn't even cry except in secret to my ceiling at night. If I cried in front of my family, what would they do? I never did. My biggest fear was that they would stay or do nothing. American TV set me up for lots of disappointment. I was bombarded by images of white parents giving affection to their kids, saying words like love, and even asking how they're doing. A novel idea in a culture where asking if someone has eaten is our greeting. I loved singing in a large group, but feared singing solos. What if my voice wasn't strong enough on its own? What if my voice faltered and couldn't hold the note? What if it wavered? What if I sounded weak? 
I still have dreams where I try to defend myself against some conflict. I find that I'm mute and I'm screaming in silence despite my best efforts. That lack of voice haunted me until I couldn't escape it. I became a mother and was diagnosed with postpartum depression in my early 30s. All those years of unheard words and unsung songs in our home finally caught up with me. I sought help with a therapist, worked on my mental wiring with some medication. It wasn't enough to sing songs, more mere aesthetics of other people's words and sentiment. I had to know what I wanted to say as well as sing. The voice and song became one in me. As I reflected in the years that followed, I learned more about my vulnerabilities, the need to be seen and heard. As I rebuilt the melody of my life, singing became an easier effort, certainly with the help of my vocal teacher. And while I never did become a rock star like my tween self thought, I did just complete my first opera. I now write words so that other people can create melodies through them. These days I sing a mean karaoke. Paradise City and Welcome to the Jungle are some of my favorites. It doesn't feel as naked to sing Axel's part in his upper range, since his upper range is comfortable for me. It doesn't require the amount of effort it takes him in that register. Who knew? Jamie has purchased a couple of guitars for himself and the last time I saw him during vacation, I could hear him strumming guitar chords of some 90s tune as though our interest hadn't changed at all in the last 30 years. Without any personal instructions, he managed to learn to play some songs. Our younger selves would be so proud. Music was our way of creating a path for expression, something somatic and innate, partly because we hadn't been shown the words to express ourselves in the more essential everyday ways. For the times that spoken words were impossible or enough, we let the vibrations of chords help us transcend those limitations. That's it. Thanks for joining us for this installment of No, You Tell It. Visit us on the web at knowyoutellit.com. <laughs>